Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Okay, it's great to be here sharing with everyone again tonight. Um, so we don't have a theme for October because we've got a few different eclectic things happening like Luke was just talking about. So Carrie just told me to talk about whatever I wanted to talk about which is great and a little bit dangerous as well I suppose sometimes I thought I'll just talk about something I've been doing a bit of reading about something I've been doing thinking about over the last oh, probably couple of years I reckon it's just been bouncing around in my head and I thought I'll make a bit of a sermon about it and the message tonight is called reimagining the kingdom of God and I realized this is a bit of a provocative title a bit of a challenging title perhaps because there is the notion we shouldn't mess with that which is sacred. And I completely acknowledge that because the kingdom of God absolutely is sacred. But the analogies we use to describe the kingdom of God are not sacred. And that's the whole point of the analogies because we are limited in our humanity in the way we can describe the kingdom of God. We don't have the words, the language, let alone the comprehension to accurately and perfectly describe the kingdom. And so the only way throughout all of human history we've ever been able to talk about the kingdom is through the use of metaphor. And I might add, poor, inadequate metaphor as well. We are limited by our human language. And this isn't a new concept. This has been acknowledged many times over the history of Christian theology. Uh, I have a couple of quotes here. Joseph Campbell, the scholar, he says, God is a metaphor for that which transcends all level of intellectual thought. It's as simple as that. And Joseph is, he's pointing to that word God, because even the word God itself is a metaphor, because it doesn't perfectly describe God, it's just we can't describe God, we can't comprehend God. And so it's really just a, just a placeholder for that which is incomprehensible. And I love how he ends that quote as well, it's as simple as that. This is the biggest mystery in all of the world, in all of the universe, in all of creation, and so we're not going to get our head around it, so just make peace with it. It's as simple as that. Any way we try to describe the kingdom is going to fall short. It makes me think of uh, this one-line movie synopsis for the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And it says, the Lord of the Rings is basically just a bunch of guys trying to return some jewellery. <laughs> and yes, it's true, I suppose, but it's also woefully inadequate <laughs> in describing the epic that is the Lord of the Rings. And so in just the same way, any way we try to describe the kingdom is going to fall short. Uh, I've got another quote here from author J. Warner Wallace, and he says, similar to what Joseph says, but he uses a few more words. He says, when we use analogies to describe God, we begin with dim reflections, searching for evidence of the eternal, immaterial creator in the finite, material things that he has created. And that's okay, as long as we use language that describes the imperfect reflective nature of our analogy in the first place. And so what Wallace is saying is that we don't have the words to describe God or the kingdom. And perhaps we're not supposed to because we are just merely mortal humans as well. But the important thing is that even though God is perfect, we need to acknowledge that our analogies are not perfect and they can be challenged and like I'm going to be talking about tonight, reimagined as well to help better understand the kingdom of God. Because I think this is important for us to do as the people of God. It's important we continue to grow and mature and challenge the analogies that we have to better 
get a picture of the kingdom of God so then we can better mirror it to the people and the world around us as well. And this is important both on an individual level, ourselves, as well as a corporate level as well as the, as the people of God. And so let me just clarify what I mean by reimagining. Reimagining isn't about throwing away the old and bringing in something new to replace it. Rather, reimagining is taking what we already have and looking at it in a different way, in a different light, from a different angle, and improving the analogy that we have. That's what I want to be looking at tonight. And I'm going to be taking us through a few steps on where my thought journey and understanding has been going with this. And I also just want to say that this is something that we see all throughout Scripture as well, a reimagining of the understanding of God and the kingdom of God. And we see Jesus doing this probably most of all. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, it says, Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. And again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And this is just Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, in just chapter 13, we get a whole sleuth more of analogies. So in verse 24, he compares it to a wheat field. In verses 31 33, again, we get the mustard seed and the yeast in the dough. In verse 44, he compares it to treasure that is hidden in a field. Verse 45, a merchant looking for fine pearls. Verse 47, a fishing net. And verse 52, an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And so we continually get Jesus reimagining the kingdom, giving us new analogies to try to understand it. And he gives us so many analogies because he acknowledges that even his own metaphors, his own analogies are not perfect descriptions of the kingdom as well. And that's not because Jesus wasn't perfect, because he was perfect, but he, like us, was limited by his humanity. He was limited by his language, by his time, and the culture he lived in being a first century Jew. He was not able to perfectly describe the kingdom of God with the language he had. And so this is something we need to continually do and build upon the analogies, our understandings of the kingdom. And so what I'm going to do first, the first step is just looking at the analogy as we currently understand it. And then we're going to move in, into some other analogies and look at where other people and other people groups have reimagined the kingdom as well. And so the biblical analogy is, well, the kingdom of God. That's what we get in Scripture. But I want to actually take it just back just one step further because even that word kingdom in itself is an analogy because the kingdom of God isn't a kingdom as we understand it it's something greater but it's just the best word the writers of scripture had to use at the time and so to understand the analogy of the kingdom I want to compare it to the to the empire and there are some similarities to empire there's some differences as well and so the similarities basically both empire and kingdom they're autocratic governments and so that means there's one person at the top calling the shots and sure they might have a few advisors to help them make some decisions but in the end ultimately it's their word that is law they call the shots however the difference between a kingdom and an empire is this so a kingdom is the one land where all the people of that land submit to the one head being the king or the queen whereas an empire on the other hand is a kingdom 
that has grown outside of its borders and has absorbed other cultures, other states and other countries. And so it's grown larger than what it originally has been. And again, all those new states, cultures and lands, they all report to that one head, the emperor or the empress. And so the logic behind the kingdom analogy is if empire is greater than a kingdom, why do we call it the kingdom of God instead of the empire of God? And so the logic is, well, for it to be the empire of God, that means it'll have to be something outside of the kingdom of God for it to, to grow and absorb. But seeing that everything in the world, the universe, and all creation was already God's, it's all just the one kingdom. So that's the logic behind the, uh, the analogy that we currently have. And so now let's take the next step of the reimagining journey. And let's look at how Jesus reimagined the kingdom. Because again, he didn't throw out the idea of the kingdom. He took the idea of the kingdom of God, but then he turned it on its head and he gave us the analogy of the upside down kingdom. And we actually get this actually before Jesus in scripture. We actually hear first about this in Isaiah, who talks about the suffering servant. And that's, uh, and that's Jesus that he's mentioning. And then in the Beatitudes, Jesus is talking about the blessed are the meek, the merciful, the mourners, the peacekeepers, the idea all of us, all the, of those who are suffering, who, um, who are on the bottom, are being blessed and lifted up again. And then in Matthew and John's Gospels, Jesus is talking about how the first will be last, uh, how the greatest will be the least, and vice versa. And then even in Paul's letters, in the epistles, he picks up on this idea of the upside-down kingdom. And then, for example, in Colossians, Paul is talking about how, uh, you will, uh, how you'll win by losing your life. So winning through death. If you want to keep your life, you must lose it. That whole idea of the upside-down kingdom. And again, these are not perfect examples of the kingdom, but they just give us little glimpses here and there from different angles about the kingdom. And so, again, Jesus used these metaphors but again was limited by his time his context and his language if jesus lived today in this post-industrial revolution age perhaps his analogy of the kingdom would look a little bit different and so the next step in the reimagining journey is let's look at some of our modern forms of government and think about how they might reflect the kingdom and I want to look at two different types of government. So the first one is the one we're familiar with because we live in it. This is a democratic government with a capitalist economy system. And some of the characteristics of that is we have an elective representative. We vote for who goes into power. We enjoy certain civil liberties. We have an independent judiciary. We have an organised opposition party. We enjoy free enterprise. We have private property rights so we can own our land, businesses and homes. There's minimal government involvement in our lives, provided we stay within the confines of the law. And we are very profit-motivated being a capitalist society. There's no limit to the amount of money an individual or a business can make, provided they're successful. On the other end of the spectrum, if we can call that, is another, what you could call a modern form of government, and that's a dictatorship government with a communist economy system. And some of the characteristics of that is... It, it, uh, power is held by one individual, similar to that of an empire or a kingdom. They rule by decree. The opposition is disempowered. That's a very diplomatic word I'm using there. Sometimes they're a bit more than disempowered. Uh, the abolition of private property, collective ownership of means of production, the elimination of the class system. That's an interesting one I'll talk a bit, uh, about in a moment. And the elimination of unfair gaps in income. And the, the government provides most of the necessities 
of life to the general population. Whereas in democracy and capitalism, we can be pretty much self-sufficient. Uh, if we're struggling, the government might jump in and you know, we get some Centrelink or something like that. But for the most part, we can be self-sufficient, not so much in the communism uh, system. They rely on the government to equally distribute all the funds. And so while we see these two sides of government on the opposite end of the spectrum, because we live in a democratic society, naturally we kind of lean towards that side. And we appreciate that way of life. But there have been many people who have looked at these systems from a kingdom of God point of view and said, well, actually, it's the communist system that actually um, mirrors more of what we understand about the kingdom of God. And there's been lots of books actually written about this. And if this is your first time hearing this, I understand this can be a bit of a challenging concept to grasp because in a democratic society, we see the word communism as a bit of a dirty word, don't we? It's like a, one of those taboo words. And so to call the kingdom of God a communist system is, it's kind of, you want to kind of hold that at an arm's distance. And so let me clarify before I go any further. Am I saying that the kingdom of God is a communist regime or that Jesus himself was a communist? No, I'm not saying that. But can we take elements of the communist system and look at them in isolation and see how they might reflect the kingdom of God? Then yeah, absolutely we can. And so if we look at some of the characteristics I was uh, mentioning before, yep, yeah, there is one person in power. We, d we don't get to vote who God is. It's not like God's going to be God for four years and I might have a chance of being God <laughs> if enough people vote for me. That's not going to happen in the kingdom of God. Uh, the opposition to God, which is, which is sin, will be absolutely removed. There's not an equal opposition party to God. Um, and in the kingdom of God, we find God promotes equality amongst all people, regardless of your culture, your, the class system, anything like that as well. And we also rely on God for our provisions. And this sounds very much like the early church that we hear about in Acts. And so in Acts chapter 2 and 4, it says this, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but anything they owned was held in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many owned lands or, or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so, yes, this sounds a lot more like a communist system than our capitalist system, where we are all just trying to make our own money and build our own little empires and looking after ourselves. This, this idea of everything is shared, we are all on common ground. And so, again, I'm not saying the kingdom of God is a, a communist regime, but there are definitely elements in it that's, that are reflected there. And so... Part of this reimagining process is looking at the world around us and using our context to better understand what the kingdom of God might look like so we can then share that and mirror that with the world around us as well. And so for Jesus, he looked around and he saw mustard trees and he saw bread and he used that as part of his analogies. Um, and so there's wisdom in using our context to better describe and reimagine the kingdom. There's also foolishness in that as well, which needs to be acknowledged. And the difference is, I think we need to do this together, collectively, because we keep each other accountable. 
rather than just someone reimagining the kingdom as, I don't know, a box of Skittles and going off on some weird direction, understanding this and talking about this and debating this and, and iron sharpening iron, that whole thing that, that talks about scripture, doing this together, doing this reimagining together, I think is a very important thing for us as the people of God to do. And so now let's go to the next step of the reimagining journey. We've looked at different analogies of the kingdom, but all of those have been wrapped around the idea of government. But there are other different other people, other people groups who have reimagined the kingdom of God are wrapped around something else, a different context, a different analogy. And I just want to have a look at a few of those. And so the first one, um, we'll go back and talk about the, the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews. One of the ways they reimagined the kingdom of God was that the kingdom of God wasn't so much a place but it was a dominion. In fact, the Hebrew word in scripture for kingdom is Malkath and it actually means dominion. And this is because the Hebrew people for a large part of their history were a group of people without a land, yet the kingdom of God was still amongst them. And so the idea of kingdom had to be something else than just a place. And we actually see Jesus point to this several times in the New Testament. In Luke 17, Jesus says, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And also in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so his idea of the kingdom isn't so much a place, but it's an era where God's will will be done. Taking a slight step then to the side, Judaism. Um, and one of the ways the Jews looked at the kingdom and reimagined the kingdom was around the notion of time. And, and this is interesting. And so the kingdom of God is tied to the past, the present, and the future. And so it's tied to the past because for the Jewish people, the kingdom of God will always be linked back to the original uh, Abrahamic and Davidic covenants uh, that God made with Abraham and David. And it's also tied to the present and the future because we understand, we read about in Scripture, how the kingdom of God is here, but it's also going to be in the future as well. And one of the analogies that is used is a mother or a woman who is with child. She is a mother in the present because she's with child, absolutely. But she's also anticipating the time when she'll be fully realized as a mother when she's actually holding her child in her arms as well. And so the kingdom is both past, present and future. The Jews can see the kingdom wrapped around this idea of time. Let me give you two modern examples, other examples. Uh, so the next one is feminist theology. And in feminist theology, they look at the Greek word for kingdom, which is basilia. And basilia in Greek is actually a feminine word. And in Greek, we have masculine words and feminine words. And so often we associate the kingdom with masculine characteristics. So we think of it as strong, it's mighty, it's, it's conquering. It, it's, it's out there, you know, flexing its muscles and showing how strong and powerful it is. However, in feminist theology, they associate uh, more feminine char characteristics with the kingdom of God. And so things like beauty and nurturing and life-giving. And so it's these ideas that come from feminist theology and from the Greek understanding of the word kingdom. And the last one I want to mention is naturalist theology. And I know this one sounds a little bit new agey, but it's actually quite interesting, so just bear with me. Uh, so a naturalist theologian would say that we are subject to the elements like 
the like air and like sunshine because if the air was to disappear or the sun were to stop shining, we would all just perish in an instant. Uh, yeah, that, that's true. But even though we rely on these things so greatly to survive, we never feel oppressed by them, do we? We never see the sun rising in the morning over the horizon and we think, oh, great, here comes a big ball of fire here to rub our nose in the fact that we can't get on without it. I can't believe I'm so oppressed by the sun. No, we love to be in nature and take deep breaths of fresh air into our lungs and feel the warmth of the sunshine on our face. And it doesn't feel like oppression. It feels life-giving. And so what if the kingdom of God is no more oppressive than the air in our lungs sun on our face and so that's another reimagining of the kingdom of God and actually one of the first times I ever heard Rob Bell talk was many many years ago and on he did a little Numa series of DVDs and one of them was called Breathe and in this little 10 minute talk he he mentions the original Hebrew word uh, or name for God Yahweh and he talks about how it's believed it was derived from the sound of human breath and so Yah breathing in and way breathing out and so worship is not necessarily standing in you know the pews of church and singing songs it's simply living and living our best lives and even if someone were to come up to you and say I do not believe in God I think he's a figment of your imagination with every breath they take they are still praising his name and that um, and that comes into naturalist theology living is worship as well Because when we look at scripture, and and this is what I find interesting, when we look at scriptures and try to understand what heaven will look like, scripture says that we will be in, uh, so heaven is us singing praises to God forever and ever and ever. And for me, who sometimes struggle to get through three songs at the start of church, singing songs forever and ever and ever, is like, yeah, no offense, Becca. (laughs) Oh, well, no, no, today was amazing. (laughs) I could have done that forever and ever and ever. But yeah, but to do that forever, that does sound a bit oppressive. (laughs) But if worship is just life-giving, is living life and breathing and feeling the sun on my face, then yes, sign me up for that. And so that's a reimagining of the kingdom of God. I just want to give you, just throw out there one more example in this reimagining journey. And this one wraps the idea of the kingdom of God around the idea of language and I find this one fascinating and so it's interesting how language can shape or limit our worldview and we may think that we use words to describe the world around us but in actual fact more often than not it's our words that dictate how we see the world around us and so there are a number of indigenous cultures for example that don't actually have a traditional word for left and right. Instead, they use cardinal direction for everything, so north, south, east or west. And one um, people group I was reading about is an Australian indigenous group uh, called the Cook Fior people who are up on the west edge of Cape York at the top of Australia. And the Cook Fior people are known for having what a lot of people would consider a superhuman level of orientation. You could put them in a dark room with no windows and they'll still know which way north is. And so just to demonstrate how bad we are at this naturally, I'm going to get everyone to close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes and now point southeast. 
<laughs> yep, there's a few hands. Oh, some, some have it. I had to look on a compass to work it out. Okay, you open your eyes now. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, I think, that way. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a difficult thing to do. And so they'll use this in everyday language. And so let's say um, you have a spider in leave. They'll come up to you and go, oh, you have a venomous spider on your northwestern leg. And that for me would be absolutely unhelpful because I wouldn't know which one that is. So I'll just do a crazy little dance until the spider goes off whatever leg that happens to be. Or they might say, okay, can you come stand on my western side? And I have to work out, okay, so which way are they facing? West is that way? Okay, I've got to stay in on this side. It's a difficult thing for us who are not used to it to be able to process. However, the way they even say hello is to ask, where are you going? That is the, their typical greeting. And the typical response would be, I am heading northwest to the hill country. How about you? And so in a culture where you need to give your heading direction to everyone you come across, you become very quickly orientated indeed. You can't get past hello without it. And so the interesting question is, how would a people group such as this understand the kingdom of God? A people group that have no traditional word or understanding of kingdom or empire, but have language at the center of their language and their culture, really. And I think we can find a little clue in the First Nations translation of the New Testament which is an amazing translation. Caro read some of that out this morning at uh, contemplative service. And instead of saying kingdom of God, they say the creator's good path, which is an interesting phrase. And so the idea is the kingdom is not necessarily a place or even a reign, but it's, it's a direction. It's a journey to be had. And this is very different to our typical government style understanding of the kingdom of God. And this analogy is especially different when we look at concepts such as sin. Because in our government language, when we view sin, we then view it in terms of legality. And so it's either right or wrong. It's illegal or it's lawful. However, in terms of the creator's good path, it's not so much about being right or wrong, but it's being lost or being found. And that's a very different way to looking at it. Because in our government language, anything not sanctioned by God is seen as a crime. And we know in the past, and even still today, the church has been in massive conflict with community by imposing certain Christian laws onto other people, and then even passing judgment and punishment to those that they see as trespassers. But in the Creator's good path, judging people doesn't help get them found. Punishing people doesn't help get them found. What they need is someone to leave their own path, find them and bring them back onto the Creator's good path again. And this leans very heavily into the lost parables that Jesus gives us. So the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. And in these stories, none of the lost things were punished. None of them were judged, but they were all celebrated when they found the path again, which is beautiful. And so this is why reimagining the kingdom is so important. Because even when we get just a glimpse of another culture, we realize just how narrow our own analogies actually are. And as followers of Christ, I think we have a responsibility to grow and mature and broaden our understandings of the kingdom. 
and allow our new analogies to transcend our old analogies. Just like what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road, just like what happened to Peter on the rooftop when the sheet from heaven was lowered down. They, they reimagined the kingdom and their worldview and the kingdom view grew. And so just to finish, let me ask again the same question that Jesus asked in Luke's gospel. What is the kingdom of heaven like? How should we explain it? And so in light of what I've been talking about tonight, perhaps it's not so much a holy place, but a holy journey. Like what we see in the First Nations translations, the creator's good path. And yet maybe it's not just a destination to just simply be reached, but it's something that encompasses the past, present and future, just like we see in Judaism. And I'm sure God will still reign supreme over this path like the head of a kingdom or an empire. Yet paradoxically, he will also be serving us like we see in Jesus' upside-down kingdom. And within God's reign, perhaps we'll enjoy the civil liberties we enjoy in democracy, yet still be content with all of us being considered equal like we see in communism. And so perhaps our reliance on the reign of God will feel no more oppressive than our reliance on the sun or the oxygen in our lungs, like in naturalist theology, and we'll celebrate not only the strength and the might of God, but also his beauty, his nature, his life-givingness, as we see uh, in feminist theology. And even though all of this stuff rolled into one analogy, it's still a pale comparison to what the kingdom of God will really be like, because we still are limited by our language. But by reimagining the kingdom and building upon what we have, we can hopefully grow as a people of God and get a better idea of what the kingdom will look like so we can better reflect it and mirror it to the world around us. That's reimagining the kingdom of God. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, <laughs> ha,